Welcome to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. This podcast brings you teaching and preaching from our archives, and you can find more resources, audio, video, and books at unionpublishing.org. My Father, through your word now, please open up to us the beating heart of your Son, so that the anxious might be comforted, we might be given the great assurance of how he is towards us now, that the proud might be humbled, that we might be changed this afternoon, our very lives changed by the knowledge of how Christ is towards us now. And in his delightful name we pray. Amen. Okay, now, in uh, this last session, I'm going to do something rather different. Um, You might have noticed from earlier today that uh, I like nicking stuff from old dead preachers um, who can't sue me. Um, I I like quoting dead guys. A lot of them are wiser than anyone alive today. Statistics should make that likely. And it's true. But um, in this session, I'm not just going to uh, have one little quote from an old dead guy. In this session, the entire thing, the whole idea of it is nicked from this. Um, Thomas Goodwin's The Heart of Christ. Um, It's um, up on the bookstall, half price, two quid fifty. And basically, what I'm going to do, I'm just nicking the whole direction of travel here and a lot of Goodwin's thoughts from this book. Um, so really what I'm going to say is kind of a trailer for the book. If you, if you want to pile more into what we get into now, you know where to go. It's upstairs. Let me just tell you a little bit about Goodwin and, um, and this book. Um, Goodwin, he was born in 1600. And about age 20, he started becoming seriously religious, which is never very fun. And uh, for Seven years, he scratched around inside himself. I don't know if this sounds familiar. He rooted around inside his heart to see if he was being holy enough. I've been there. And then a pastor told him, look out. Look out to Christ as your identity and security. Rest on Christ alone. And with that, he was free. But Goodwin began to see that actually that is how many, many Christians are. He said, it is so many Christians, and he's talking 400 years ago, nothing's changed. He said, with so many Christians... They are too much carried away with the rudiments of Christ in their own hearts, the sort of effects of Christ, and not after Christ himself. Indeed, he said, the minds of many are so wholly taken up with their own hearts that Christ is scarce in all their thoughts. Why? Why is that so? Why do we do that? Because, he said, 
we don't know how kind and loving Christ is. And so, we don't dare look to him. And so we imprison ourselves, we cower in our guilt, rather than looking out to him. And so Goodwin made it his life's mission from then to set forth Christ, that people's gaze might be drawn to him, that they might find confidence in him, they might find their hearts won to him. And that was exactly what he was about here. The original title, it's called here The Heart of Christ. The original title of it was The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. What he was getting at was, he's saying, he knew we tend to think that, all right, once Christ was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but now he's ascended, he's just so aloof, he can seem just so remote to us. Surely now he's too holy to have anything to do with us. Now he's so exalted we just can't relate to him. And so Goodwin sets out in this book, he says, to take our hands and lay them upon Christ's heart and let us feel how it beats and how his bowels, his very guts yearn towards us even now when he is in glory. And when believers see that, that if anything, Christ's capacious heart beats only more strongly with compassion and love for us, with tenderness, then he said, that may hearten and encourage believers to come more boldly unto the throne of grace, unto such a saviour and high priest. When they see how sweetly and tenderly his heart, even though he's now in glory, is inclined towards them. That was Goodwin's aim here. That's my aim now. To encourage you with the thought of how Christ's heart beats for you now. So, how could we possibly know this? How could we possibly know how Christ feels about us now? Well, let's start with John 13. There are lots of ways we can know. John 13, let's start there. Now, John 13, if you flick to it, this is it's the night before Jesus died. John 13, the night before Jesus died, and we'll just go from verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, get this, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. That's the context. He knows he's going to go to be with his Father. That's the context. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, knowing that, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist and washed their feet. Knowing he was to ascend to heaven in glory, he washed their feet. 
He knows they're not going to see him much more. And so he makes it very clear to them, this is how I am towards you forever. Even when I'm in glory with my father, I live to stoop and wash you. And what's very surprising is he does all this for those he knows are going to betray him. End of the chapter, verse 38. He knows Peter's going to betray him, to disown him. He knows they're all going to run away. And look, he doesn't say, if you don't betray me, then I'll pray for you. No. Knowing they will betray him, he reassures them. (laughs) He knows what they're going to do and he reassures them. He prays for them. He dies for them. Even so does Jesus pray for us now. Even though daily we are unkind to him, he remains ever kind towards us. And over the next few chapters in John, he tells them how he will go like a loving bridegroom to prepare a place for his bride, his people. And Goodwin says this, it is as if Christ had said, the truth is, my people, I cannot be without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am so that we may never part again. That's the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. Yes, that's what he's like, always outward looking, outgoing in kindness. And then they betray him, as we do every day. They betray him and he's killed. Now, what's his first reaction after they've betrayed him? He's raised from the dead. And what are the very first words he uses of them? What are his first words about those traitors? My brothers, peace be with you. He calls them my brothers and gives them his peace. Coarseness, filled with the knowledge of our own guilt, our own treachery. We feel that we'll want to hide when Christ returns. We'll never be able to look into those pure eyes, knowing what we've done. But look, this is how Christ is. To the very ones who sold him out directly to the cross, he says, my brothers, peace be with you. And in fact, Goodwin works through every single resurrection appearance of Jesus. All the times that Jesus appears to those who betrayed him. And he notices this. Through all those appearances, Goodwin says, No sin of theirs troubled him, but their unbelief. 
No sin of theirs troubled him, but their unbelief. You see, he's dealt with their sin on the cross. It's done. And he wants them to accept and enjoy the salvation he's just so dearly bought them. And the only thing that troubles him is that they just can't believe it. Can you? Failure. Sinner. Be not afraid. Your sins he will remember no more. It is done. And he lives to bless. And do you remember the last thing, the very last thing the disciples see as he's ascending to the Father? Do you remember? What's he doing? Their very last sight of him. What's he doing? He's blessing them. Their very last sight. He's blessing them. He wants us to know how he always is towards us. Well, he ascends. What do we know of him now? Now he actually is in glory. We'll come to Revelation 5. Extraordinary Revelation 5. Now in Revelation 5, John looks. Let's just read verse 1. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So he sees God the Father holding a scroll, sealed with seven seals. Now, what we get to see is this is the scroll of destiny. And those seven seals, they're like the seven days of creation. As in six movements, God in creation drove away darkness, emptiness, nothingness. And on, with the seventh, rest. That's just what opening this scroll does. It brings about the new creation. In six steps, you can see over the next two chapters, it will get rid of death, evil, the effects of the fall. And it will bring about, well, let's go and see what it brings about. Chapter 7, here's what opening the scroll does. Here's what opening the scroll does. Uh, let's go from verse, chapter 7, verse 14. One of the elders explains to John, says, he sees many people, he, he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That's the context for a lot of this, by the way, the great tribulation. Revelation's written to suffering Christians. They've suffered. But they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what opening the scroll does. So, flick back to chapter 5. 
when nobody is found who can open this scroll, chapter 5, verse 2, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. I began to weep loudly. Of course you would. For if the scroll is not opened, we will never get to hear and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It won't happen. If the scroll is not open, pain and death are here to stay. Cancer rules. And we will keep on hurting, hating and dying and there will be no end. Weep, John, weep. And then, verse 5, he hears, weep no more. For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Yes, the lion was prophesied back from Genesis 49. The risen and ascended Jesus is so awesomely powerful. He is able to open this great scroll and like a lion rip death to pieces. Christians, we have a lion in heaven. One who will hunt down all our sorrows and at the last kill every one of them. But here's what I really want us to see. John looks for this great lion and he sees, verse 6, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lion is a lamb. Now, he is an, he's an awesome lamb. He's seven horns. Horns in the Bible are always a symbol of power. He's all-powerful. And with seven eyes, he's all-seeing. And everyone in heaven falls down before him. He's powerful enough to come and take the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Nobody else would dare. But he's a lamb. The one on the center of the throne with the power to wield history and annihilate death is a lamb. Friends, thank you for listening to Delighting in the Trinity. We want to let you know about two new resources by Michael Reeves. The first is Authentic Ministry, Serving from the Heart. Authentic Ministry is not simply a matter of mastering professional skills or of endlessly pouring oneself out in works of service. Rather, it springs from a joyful union with the heart of Christ. The second resource is Right with God, a little book on the center ground of the Christian faith, justification by faith. For anyone who does not know Christ or is lacking confidence in their salvation, the Bible has good news of comfort and joy. You can order your copy today at unionpublishing.org. Back in the summer, um, our family, we went on a family holiday to the north coast of Devon, and we went to a farm there. Um, I've got two little girls quite young. And we went to farm. And the great thing was the farmer, um, it, it was a cattle farm, and the farmer let, um, let us go around. I went and took the girls around with the farmer to feed the animals as he did his daily rounds. 
which the girls just absolutely loved. So they'd go around and they'd feed the pigs and they'd feed the sheep and they'd stroke the alpacas and all that kind of stuff. They absolutely loved it. And um, every morning, we'd sort of kind of do it first thing in the morning. You don't get lions when you're a parent. First thing in the morning, Lucy would run into me. Uh, she, Lucy, she's four. And she'd run into me and she said, Daddy, can we go and cuddle the lambs? That's what lambs are like. They're completely approachable. Not scary. Little children can run to a lamb. Amazingly, the one on the throne is not some haughty dictator. He's a lamb and little children can go to him. The difference to us, it's almost comic. With us, don't you know it? Just tiniest bit of power goes straight to our heads, right? All that cosmic power doesn't go to his. He's a lamb, a friend, a brother. I just think how that must have struck John when he saw who it was. Because there, seated on the throne was John's best friend, one he'd lived with, walked with, the one he'd eaten with and leant against at the Last Supper, his friend. In the 16th century, at the time of the Reformation, one of the German princes who was converted from Roman Catholicism to Evangelicalism He wanted his people in his area around Heidelberg to understand the new evangelical faith. And so what he did is he put together what was called a catechism, which was basically a list of questions and answers. Was anyone brought up with a catechism? Anyone? Yeah, okay, yes, a couple of people were. Um, Wonderful things that have kind of gone out of fashion these days. Um, And a catechism basically is this list of questions and answers that ideally, I won't ask, you're supposed to memorise so that you, you get to learn the faith, as you learn what's the correct answer to this question about the faith. Here's one of the questions from that catechism. Get this. Would you ever ask a question like this? What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? Would you ever put it like that? Wouldn't you put it as, how terrifying is it to you? That Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, right? No, 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 that's not what it is. What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? Answer, oh, it's comfort. Answer, that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I may look for the very same person who offered himself for me to the judgment of God. I may look to the one who's removed all curse from me. I look for him to come as the judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into condemnation but shall take me with all his chosen ones to everlasting joys and glory. Do you see the one on the throne, the judge, is the lamb who died for us. Do you see verse 6? John says, this lamb looks as if it had been slain. The judge is the one who died for you. My brother, 
my sister. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has been through unspeakable, excruciating pain for you. Do you think he could stop caring about you? No. No. We have the most passionate friend in heaven. All his heart stretched out to us. He has more tenderness and more compassion for you than does your closest friend. Than does the most tender mother. John Bunyan the old author of Pilgrim's Progress, he said something about this. He was looking at Act 7. Do you remember Act 7? Act 7 is when Stephen, the first person to be martyred since Jesus ascends, he's just about to be stoned in Act 7. And do you know what happens? What does Stephen see? He's just about to be stoned, and he looks up, and he sees Jesus standing. Standing at the right hand of the Father. As Jesus, as the Lamb, is standing here. And Bunyan says, The Son, all-conquering, does normally sit in heaven. His work complete. But there are times when he stands. When his people are in great and sore troubles. And the sufferings of his people so move him that he stands. Stephen is threatened and Jesus is on his feet crying, Father, see my brother. That is the one who is on the throne now. The one overflowing with compassion for you. The one who has bled for you. And who knows how it feels to suffer. Do you know, in fact, there is no trial that you could face that Jesus himself has not faced. If you're facing hard times now, it's good for you to know that. But I bet I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, really? Does Jesus really know what I'm going through right now? I mean, does Jesus know what it is to lose a loved one, to lose family, to lose friends? Yes. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. Does Jesus know what it is to feel rejected by men? Yes. He was by most, spat on and despised. Does he know what it is to feel abandoned by God? Yeah. On the cross. Do you know what it is to feel excruciating pain? Yes. Does he know what it is to be so harassed by dark thoughts he's even tempted to the brink of suicide? Yes. After 40 days of clawing hunger, he heard the whisper, throw yourself from the temple rooftop. He sympathizes. And do you know what? I haven't even told you the half of it yet. I haven't told you the best bit. 
Come with me to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Now, this is the text that Goodwin really majors on, because this is what he wants us really to get. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Yes, come to Jesus, for he's so full of compassion. But now Goodwin spots something in the following verses that will blow your socks off. Hebrews 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here we go. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, I think that actually becomes a little clearer in the King James Version, or at least putting it differently helps you dwell on it. In the old King James Version, it says, the high priest has compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. He's saying each high priest of Israel, all of whom were supposed to be pictures of Jesus, the ultimate high priest, They were all appointed as someone who would have compassion on those who are out of the way, on those who are going astray. In other words, it was part of the job of the high priest to see those who are sinning and have compassion on them. And so, Jesus does not just have compassion on us in our troubles. He has compassion on us in our sin. Says Goodwin, your very sins move him more to pity than to anger. Can you believe it? Your very sins move him more to pity than to anger. Fear not. Christ is so far from being provoked against you, having paid for your sin. He's so far from being provoked against you. All his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only on the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. He knows how it enslaves you. He wants you free of these sins. But his affections shall be more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. 
What shall separate us from Christ's love? Not even your sin. Do you see what Goodwin's saying? He's saying sin is a sickness. And fathers don't hate their children when they get sick. They they hate the sickness and they'll do all they can to kill the sickness. But the, the sickness in their child actually makes them yearn for their child more, pity their child more. And so it is with our Father. Brothers and sisters, our Jesus is so kind that when you sin, his first reaction is pity. Compassion. I mean, when you sin, how do you think of Jesus? When you sin, you want to run from him, don't you? But when you sin, he wants to run to you, to help you, to heal you, for his presence is joy. And you're running and you'll run into sin, you're running into decay, rotten death, darkness. He would have you back. Now, people sometimes ask if it's not dangerous to speak quite so openly of just how very kind and compassionate and gracious Christ is. And they ask, does this not give people a license to sin if they get to hear how eagerly merciful he is? But don't you sense it? Do you sense it? Oh, You'd avoid offending a less kind Lord out of fear. But this Lord, you'd leave your sin out of love. I mean, doesn't his kindness melt you when you hear of it? I think, oh Jesus, if I remembered you as you really are, then my dirty desires would simply be weaker than my desires for you. They are when I remember how you are. And when you've sinned, and you think then, when you've just sinned, and you think upon that beating heart of compassion, doesn't it win you back? You want to go back? John Bunyan said, Mercy is the only antidote against sin. Striking thing to say. Mercy is the only antidote against sin. Tis of a thawing nature. It will loose the heart that is frozen up in sin. It will make the unwilling willing to come to Jesus Christ for life. My friends, in all our sorrows, in all our sins, with uplifted head, we may look to the very one who died for us, He is the one enthroned in heaven. And Christ sits or stands there now. His mighty once ruptured heart. Overflowing with compassion stirred by our difficulties. And he lives now all his will bent on opening that scroll. That he might deliver his people. 
that they might never hunger again, that they might never thirst again, that he might lead them to his father where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I ask you, is not this a Jesus worth knowing? Is not this a Jesus worth making known to the world? The world so needs love, kindness, compassion, and here is one all-compassionate. Here is one who is love covered over with flesh. Now, I just wonder, there may be someone, and you realize today you haven't actually yet known Jesus as your friend. I'm going to ask you now, if that's you, wouldn't you want Jesus as your friend? And wherever you're at, wherever you are at, you can come to him as to a lamb and you'll find he's a lion for you. And if you do know Jesus, then my brother, my sister, you could not have a stronger, gentler friend than Jesus. All compassionate for you in your difficulties. All powerful, finally, to remove them. In heaven, where they see him clearest, where they know him best, none can help but cry, worthy is this lamb who was slain. Let's pray. Our loving Lord Jesus, Lamb of bleeding compassion, Lion, triumphant over all that is wrong. Oh, that day when freed from sinning and we see your lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how we'll sing. You win our hearts, our brother, our protector. To you and to the Father of mercies be all glory, power, honor, strength forever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to Delighting in the Trinity with Michael Reeves, brought to you by Union. Union is devoted to growing leaders and growing churches. Our School of Theology equips leaders for ministry. Union Publishing supplies them and their churches with quality theological resources and books. Union Mission supports and financially helps church planting and revitalisation. And Newton House, Oxford, invests in the next generation of theologians and scholars. Our vision is to see leaders and their churches the world over reformed and renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out about our courses and learning communities around the world, to buy union books, to discover support for your church plant, or to become a friend of union and support our ministry, 
visit www.theola.gy.